Moviegoers around the world are about to visit Pride Rock through director John Favreau's groundbreaking adaptation of Disney's beloved 1994 animated classic, The Lion King. The photoreal film was made using a bleeding-edge virtual production process that involved live-action production techniques to create a final movie that is completely CG. Today's guest, John Favreau, is a director, producer, actor, and writer who is no stranger to Disney's universe. He used earlier virtual production techniques to make his 2016 hit The Jungle Book, an adaptation of Disney's 1967 animated classic. For Marvel, Favreau directed Iron Man and Iron Man 2, served as executive producer on the Avengers films, including Endgame, and as an actor on numerous Marvel films, including the recent Spider-Man Far From Home. Today, I'm very happy to welcome The Lion King's director, John Favreau, who talks about the innovative filmmaking process honoring the 1994 animated classic, as well as the music and new songs for the movie. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. John, congratulations on the film, and thank you so much for joining oh, us thank today. Thank you, my pleasure. So this movie was made using virtual production techniques, which loosely means that the final film is photoreal, yet it's fully CG and made incorporating production techniques that are typically used in live-action production. It's building on some of the techniques that you use to make Jungle Book, but for the uninitiated, would you explain the process and what's new this time around? Well, it's quite different from Jungle Book in that there's a lot of new technology available most of which are consumer-facing products like VR headsets and using a game engine as the basis, in this case Unity, as the basis for our multiplayer VR filmmaking game that we built uh, from the ground up and developed over the course of this. So what I mean by that is we created a way for all of the film crew, essentially, you know, we hired what was essentially a live-action film crew to go into virtual reality and be able to stand in a set that was created and with animated performances of characters based on recorded performances by the actors and be able to look around this environment as though we were on a live action film set and set cameras and move them using a live action film crew. And they actually have Steadicam and Dolly and these tools. Yeah, so if you showed up to our set, you would see a room with no lights, you know, it was and a lot of monitors, so you could just sit essentially video village and watch what's being filmed, or you could pop into one of the headsets. And I think up to six people could be in there at the same time. And so whether we were location scouting in the beginning and figuring out where we wanted to shoot things, or if we were actually filming or quote unquote filming, there was no film, we would be in there and, you know, figuring out with uh, viewfinders, just like you would on a live action set where the camera move would begin and end. And as we got better at it, of course, we were flying around. We weren't walking as much. 
and we would be there, you know, iteratively coming up with what we wanted to do creatively, which fits much closer to what my background and skill set was than what you would do in the layout phase of an animated movie, which is sit at a computer monitor and create splines for camera moves or set lights or choreography. Here at Let, we kind of divided the responsibilities in the same way that you would on a film set. Mm -hmm. So it was you, it was your director of photography, Caleb Deschanel, yes. your visual effects supervisor, Rob Legato, Rob Legato again, all of the, your key departments that you would have on a film set. Yeah, it would be, it would, it would depends on what phase. So like in the beginning, it was script, uh, storyboard, story, head of story, story department, Dave Lowry was our head of story. You start putting those images together in like a flip book type thing, like a showreel of, of pencils with temp voices in there and you sort of watch the movie as a pencil thing, just like if you saw the early stages of a Pixar film. Then when we got into character design and environment design, we would build it so that we could port that to a Unity, essentially a gaming environment. So it didn't look as photoreal as the movie you see when you go to the movie theater, but it looks as good as like a, a really good video game but enough to get the lighting and the sense of the, how the characters are gonna move. And then the animators would animate all the performances. So it was keyframe animation, again, just like a Pixar movie. It was when we got to the camera phase that we had suggested camera moves and suggested layout that I would work out with Andy Jones, the head of animation, but then Caleb could come in and decide to change those cameras and change the lighting. And then we would actually film takes and those takes would create dailies. Those dailies would go to an editorial department and unlike previs or layout, the editor would make the decisions where the cuts were and what shots to use. It wasn't a linear set of shots and moves that we knew would go in a particular order. All of it was to create that imperfection, you know, the wabi-sabi of live action where a lot of mistakes happen or, you know, the dolly grip, if he pushes the camera too fast, the camera operator has to, you know, compensate for that in the way that they're operating the wheels. And so all of that was meant to create more of the imperfection that would make it feel, appear to be live action, even though every single, you know, scene and character was keyframe animated. <gasps> oh no, it's a little lion. That is not a lion. Well then go check it out, what is that it? That is not a lion, it's a furry bird. It looks like a lion. Yeah, that's not a lion. Let me get a closer look, excuse me. Oh, all right, let me see what we're dealing with here. It's a lion! Run for your life, Pumbaa! Wait, 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 it's a little lion! It gets bigger. Can we keep him? Can we please keep him? Oh, oh, okay, uh, I promise, I'll walk him every day. If he makes a little mess, I'll clean it up. You'll I'll be, be his little mess. He's gonna eat you and then use my body as a toothpick. But one day, when he's big and strong, he'll be on our side. I've got it. What if he's on our side? Hear me out! Having a ferocious lion around might not be such a bad idea. Well then, can we keep him? Yes, of course we can keep him! Well, My God, who is the brains of this operation? We're gonna name him Fred! And you decided to try this new process with a retelling of one of the most iconic animated films of all time. Right. A little pressure? It was a lot of pressure, and, and part of why we did it that way was because of the specific requirements, at least as I saw it, for this particular story. It was pretty clear early on that nobody needed a new animated Lion King because although it was 25 years ago, it, it holds up very well right now, even to the younger generation. It's, it, you know, it's, I think the pinnacle of 2D animation in the Disney catalog still is and probably always will be the biggest, most successful 2D animated movie as far as how much business it did. And, and certainly the stage show also uh, has that distinction. So my feeling was if I was gonna do Lion King, you, you couldn't change too much of it 
because people's memories of it are too vivid and too fond, and the story is just too well told. And any liberties we were going to take, and it does deviate quite a bit, but we had to make those deviations feel uh, invisible to the casual viewer, much like when you see the stage show. It deviates. I think it's like an hour longer than the movie, but it feels like you're seeing the same story. So we wanted to, those changes to be invisible, but we knew we had to distinguish ourselves. And so making it feel to be a third medium, just like the stage show was different from the animated film, we felt that we had to make this look like it was live action to fit in with the, with the other live action adaptations like Beauty and the Beast or Jungle Book. But of course, we were going to use completely animated techniques to achieve this live action feel. And so everything we designed was to make it feel live action. And we knew that the animals had to be as natural as could be. But when you're filming animals, there are techniques that films like, uh, you know, the, the Planet Earth documentaries use and certain types of lenses, certain types of the way they use music and editing. So we felt that we had to do everything we could to emulate the limitations that one would experience uh, when they were doing a documentary. So a lot of it's long lenses. The camera moves, you know, oftentimes the camera moves are nodal. A lot of times it's mismatching editorially in the coverage because you're using one camera and kind of cheating coverage, popping to a different size. And we kind of reverse engineered a lot of the, the documentaries. It's also nice to talk to Hans Zimmer, who happens to score those as well. So uh, we really studied that. And so these tools that we built were meant to differentiate us from, from the animation format. But now this production process really could change the way Hollywood makes movies. What impact do you foresee on the types of movies that are made and how they are made? It doesn't have to use this specific technique. I think each project is a puzzle and, and each puzzle requires a different solution. But with what I've learned from this, I'm using it now on The Mandalorian because here I am working with a whole group of different directors, but by having this virtual camera instead of a previs process, it allows us to kind of make the movie together virtually before we ever shoot the episodes. And what's more is we could use what we get, all the learning from the virtual production informs how much set we have to build, what's in the background. And we're even exploring in the first season, we used uh, video walls and game engine technology, in this case, Epic, Epic Game Engine to actually have parallax and moving in-camera backgrounds for some of the sequences. So instead of having a translator or a green screen, we could actually move the camera and the background moves using the game engine to, to maintain parallax. So using all the same tools of like virtual reality and virtual camera and positional data on the camera, we can help drive a much different and more efficient visual effects pipeline, especially for something where the turnaround time is as fast as a television show. So it's like when you learn what the technology could do and you understand it, it will inspire you to either tell different stories or alter the technology to fit whatever story you're trying to tell. And, and so many people came to the set to see what we were doing. And just as I was welcome to other people set like James Cameron, we welcome other people. And so there's a nice spirit of collaboration between people in the industry who are interested in technology because it offers an opportunity to make the process more efficient, quality higher, quality of life better, and allow stories to be told that formerly couldn't have been told because now you have so many more tools and your imagination can, can, can run more free. What impact could the process have on budgets? This project, if we had eliminated the, the virtual camera step, 
we could have made this film less expensively, significantly less expensively, because we had a whole film crew and uh, a film shoot. And if we had done the traditional animation pipeline, we could have gone right from pencil to, you know, the storyboards into showreels into layout and then go right from layout into render. And we could have been done probably six months earlier, maybe a year earlier. I don't think it would have had the same look. And I think this particular project required the look that virtual camera offered. So we could have condensed the process and it would have just been purely animated. But by putting this live action aesthetic into it, it made it a more expensive process. But you're saying that if you had done it the other way, it would have felt more like a traditional. I think it would have movie. felt, I think you would have felt spline cameras. I think you would have felt an aesthetic that you're not always conscious of that would make you subconsciously say, oh, this is animated. The camera's moving in a way that doesn't feel as much like a live action film or the cut points feel predetermined as opposed to something that was chosen after the fact by an editor using whatever available footage worked best to tell this particular story or whatever was usable for this action sequence. There's a lot of subconscious decisions that are being made, even in the way the camera's operated, when you're following something as opposed to planning something ahead of time. But for example, using similar technology for set extension and in-camera visual effects, it's actually making the process shorter and allowing much more efficiency on a film set and requiring, you know, if you could do photogrammetry in a real environment and have a virtual back lot, you can sh go through, shoot several scenes one after the other and just call up on the computer a different background. And as long as it's photo real, and what's nice too is the actors get to see real environments behind them. They don't just see blue screen. And a cinematographer could line up a shot and know where the horizon is because it's there. And when they move or raise or tilt the camera or boom up or down, they see what you inherit in the geometry behind the performers. So I think that there's ultimately always room for efficiency. I think in the beginning, it's always more expensive. And then Moore's Law takes over. And then you have efficiencies of scale. And right now, there's so much great technology readily available uh, to consumers that could be applied to this industrial application, that's where you really benefit because you have all of this investment into the consumer space and getting consumers to adopt something is not as easy as getting it adopted for industrial applications where people see opportunities in these new technologies. And so as we're playing with all these new HMDs and we have these great partners with, you know, Unity was helping us write code. You know, Magnopus was brought in as a contractor. MPC was there. Rob Legato was overseeing much of this. They would all come in and we'd open the hood and say, okay, let's do, a, let's do a code dump. Let's see what we want to change. What tools do we want to change? What would you like to see in our engine that would be helpful for this? So there's a, a lot of incentive for collaboration with these technology companies and all trying to refine this and differentiate themselves from each other. Does this process, taking it onto a virtual set, also provide savings compared with if you were to go on location? I don't, you know, it depends because there's a, it's, it's a little bit apples to oranges because I don't know how, what, what, what would the version on a live, let's say we avoided this and we went out to, you know, the Masamara and we filmed plates. It would never, no matter what you're filming, it wouldn't look like you were following a real animal going through it. So it would either feel awkward or you would do photogrammetry and texture map it onto something later and it, everything would become a visual effect. And you would be doing a lot of knocking things around in discovery in post-production. You could shoot as much as you want. It's like the process that you do in an action movie. You go there, you shoot the actors, and then you shoot the action sequences either with first or second unit. 
And then the vendor has to bang all this stuff together and make a coherent story out of it. No matter how well you plan it, they have to do adjustments, replacements, and things like that. Rotoscoping around things because you don't like the background. And it becomes very inefficient. So it's not that it's necessarily cheaper, but it's more dollars actually hit the screen. I wanted to treat the whole movie like a reshoot. I wanted everything that we filmed and I wanted to give the vendors time to get the shots right. And because the story was Lion King, we didn't have to do a lot of discovery and testing and reshooting, none at all. As a matter of fact, we stuck to the original version of it and gave uh, MPC the time to actually take every step of the process to its fruition and nothing was changed, scrubbed, left on the cutting room floor. It was as efficient as an animated film. And animation has a much different percentage of shots that actually end up in the movie compared to live action where there's a lot of discovery and reshoots. Your visual effects supervisors had suggested that without this approach, if you had made the same movie, meaning with the same look, it might have taken another year or more to make. Do you agree with that? And how do you think this could potentially impact uh, production I, I schedules? Agree. I do agree with that because of the iterative process, because so much of you break down the script or you give storyboards and a whole conversation takes place between production and the vendor and they figure out how much they bid the shots, how much the shot's going to cost, what the budget's going to be, you know, what the big line item for visual effects is going to be. When push comes to shove, the vendor is trying to figure out how many versions they have to do of something, how many, you know, it's just labor, it's labor, it's rendering time. There are hard costs that they have to factor in as they're bidding something, just like building a house. You have to know, well, how big is it? How many windows are there? So it does come down to brass tacks at a certain point. The efficiency that I think Rob Legato was, was talking about was instead of saying, giving a note in an effects review, and then them going back and somebody passing a note to a supervisor, passing it to somebody else, and then that person, somebody on a box being handed a, a note, and then they go through their checklist and they said, tilt faster. And then, you know, or reframe to the left, they guess what that might mean, or maybe you have the effects supervisor might happen to be with them and help explain what the note is. But the idea that that's going to be a perfect camera move, it would be like me talking to a camera operator and saying, you know, that I want, add a dolly move and then leaving the set. What this allowed us to do is when a shot would come back to us, we would feed it back into the virtual stage and you'd either have Caleb or Rob Legato actually operate over that shot and reoperate it. And so instead of going back and forth three times to get it right and all that wasted effort, we could show them exactly what we want. And then they say, oh, got it. And then they render that. So it allowed for a more hands-on approach and less of a message in a bottle type of note pipeline. When you and I had talked about Jungle Book, I remember you spent a lot of time figuring out how to make the animals talk in this photo real environment. Right. In this case, you had to do that, but they also had to sing. How did you approach that? You know, I had learned a lot on Jungle Book. You know, we were very worried about the talking animals. And as we dug into the archives of conversations that Walt Disney had had surrounding Bambi, it was almost the same conversation. Like, how are we going to make this more photo real in that case than Snow White? I want these animals to look real. How do we get them to talk? And he mentioned, like, it really works well when you cut away while they're talking or the, the young ones talking is more convincing than the older ones. And all the little magic tricks that help cushion that blow. But at the end of the day, you have to show an animal that doesn't talk talking. The thing that gave us the most clarity for me was the movie Babe. So in that movie, there was a tremendous amount of expression and emotion, but it wasn't a CG pig. It was a real pig not making human expressions and having very subtle phonemes, very subtle mouth movements, 
just enough to justify the talking. And so much of it was the story and the way the camera was placed. And all the talking was just subtle enough that it didn't draw too much attention to itself, but present enough that you believe that it was plausible. You bought the CG because you bought the way the pig was moving, you bought the physics, and it was edited, and the music and the story was so good that you were pulled into it. In Jungle Book, it didn't bump for anybody. Uh, Of course, we had Mowgli to cut to, you know, every other shot, but nobody felt that it broke the illusion. So we felt pretty, and I was working with Andy Jones again, and also we were working with cats, which is a lot easier than wolves. You know, the facial structure on a cat is much more similar to a human. You don't have as much emotion in the face and expression. You know, with dogs or wolves, the eyes are very anthropomorphic as far as emotion goes. But with cats, you're getting most of the expression through body language. And so it was our goal here to not mimic the performance of the human actors, but be inspired by the choices they were making and then transpose it to what an animal would do who was expressing that same emotion. And so thanks to the internet and whether it was a research that we filmed down in Animal Kingdom of the animals or what we saw on the internet, we would always pull in clips and thumbnails of performances of real animals that we felt matched up with what we were trying to perform in any given shot. And so whenever we had reviews for animation, we would have you know, the basic animation that we did within the game engine for the virtual camera. We would have the thumbnail of whatever the actor was doing on a long lens video feed from when they recorded their voice, just to see their eye contact patterns, if they were scowling, if they were laughing, when the transitions were happening in their face. And and much of, by the way, motion capture, much of what the animators are able to get from motion capture are those actors' choices. It's not always the metadata that they're using. They're often using the inspiration of the choices that the actor's making and, and having that inform the animation. But in this case, you weren't using motion capture. We this weren't. Hand but but we, I think we took, uh, without all of that, expensive, you know, energy, uh, memory processing, heavy process of taking points of the face and and mapping out what they're doing. Just having the video reference gave us the benefit of what motion capture often gives you, which is inspiration for a human animator. Because very rarely do you just take a motion capture performance, retarget it onto your model, and then boom, you're ready for, you know, I'll see you at the premiere. It usually takes a lot of invisible hands doing it. And I know Andy Jones worked on Avatar, and that was all motion capture. But to get the human's faces even onto the Navi, which is not that different from a human, I asked him how much of the work in Avatar was going on in the triangle of face. And he was like, it was like 80% of his work was just in what was going on in the face. And that's for something that's motion capture, where it's, you're supposed to inherit everything from the performer. There's still a lot of human artistic effort into these films that are seen as primarily technical or, or, or based in new technology. So was the singing even more challenging? Yeah, you, you know, you wanted to make, it depends who was singing when. But, you know, you'll notice things like the camera moving or, you know, we had long lenses. So you had foreground, a good foreground wipe at the right time or, you know, going through a dappled cucoloris to help break things up a little bit or movement. All of those things help the plausibility of it because if you were to stare at a performance of an animal singing in close-up in a lock-off, it's not as convincing. And so, you know, in the tradition of a magician or an illusionist, you you use whatever tools that you have, and often that's conspiring with the, with the uh, cinematographer how you would shoot something to help, you know, not create as much scrutiny and letting 
the phonemes be the least interesting part of the scene and give give the audience something else to look at as a distraction or to help make the visual effect more convincing. Now, you also have the classic songs and then some new yeah. music in this film. As I understand it, late in the game, you added um, an original song titled Spirit performed yes. by Beyonce. Yes. Tell us about that. <laughs> so Beyonce had been working on a inspired by album, completely you know, separate from the film, but collaborative with us in that checking in with us, letting us know what she was doing, asking us for assets from the movie. And she had been a really wonderful partner out throughout this process. We had recorded like, uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight with her? And she had done a bit of a deep dive into our technology and seeing what we're doing because she's very curious and has a lot of different creative disciplines as a filmmaker, as a, you know, songwriter, performer, choreography, a dancer. You know, she was very, very much embracing of what we were doing and understood that we were innovating a lot of things and was, you show somebody like her what we're doing and it inspires a lot of ideas. And so musically and cinematically, she was working on kind of something to be supportive of this. And then one song came out of that process, which was Spirit, that she played for us and was just wonderful. And Hans Zimmer is, you know, of course, not just a, a composer on this, but really has shepherded me through this experience and made me understand what was happening during the old film, which although we hold it in such high esteem now, he's always quick to remind me how improvisational the process was and how, you know, much like any, many great films like Star Wars or Casablanca, at the time felt very haphazard, but came together to be something that was quite perfect. And so he was there to help guide me through that. And when he heard Spirit, and I said, I think that this is, you know, we all agreed it was a great song. It's like, can we fit it? You want to fit it in a way where it doesn't detract from what people have come to expect from it. You don't want to pull something out that was in the original film to make room for it. But there was a montage that really worked well emotionally with it. We tried it. The original album version was cool with edits. And then Hans got to work with Lebo M and they laid in some vocals over it. And so the version that's in the film is actually slightly different from the one that's on the album, but it helped make it feel like it was part of the same soundscape as it. It's a moment when Nala's character is, you know, is, is having a lot of impact on Simba and a moment of soul searching. It's after he sees his father in the clouds. And so it's the build up to the last act. And, you know, and he was always my, you know, and continues to be somebody who was a, you know, very helpful collaborator and guide. You know, he pulls, he has this, this shop, you know, remote control where he does his recordings and mixing and and composing and you know he, he goes into his workshop and he works like he wakes up you know late in the day like a rock star and but works all night like he just likes he's a night owl then like the next day he'll call you and say like when like three in the afternoon and say i got something for you to hear come down and so you go into his beautiful it looks like a european parlor with uh you know velvet wallpaper and candles and instruments and computers and and you go in there 
and, you know, maybe Pharrell's there with him working on something and they're showing you something and he plays it against picture and he has a big monitor. And it really worked well and it was super exciting. And so it allowed us to have that original song. It allowed us to have, uh, in, the, in the first end credit song, is a collaboration between Elton John right. and Tim Rice and Lebo M has a choir on it. It's called Never Too Late. So to have a new Elton John song there at the end that... You know, although it's new, feels connected because his hearing Elton John's voice at the end of the film feels really um, familiar and fun and and emotionally, you know, me growing up with his voice is so special. So, again, mixing the old with the new. And I think that's what Walt Disney always did so well. He really embraced new technologies. You know, even Steamboat Willie that we think of as like an old fashioned cartoon was quite groundbreaking at the time for locking picture with sound. And, you know, he always embraced these new technological breakthroughs and applied new tech and new techniques to old stories. And there's even a little tipping of the cap to that. When we do Lion Sleeps Tonight, we kind of lock the picture to the sound and we choreograph the animal's movements with the, with the song. And even today, even with all this technology, there's still something really uh, satisfying about watching just the little, you know, whatever the deer kind of trotting along to the to the tempo of the song. There's just something, it's like a brain hack. I don't know. Yeah, thank you. And that was something that wasn't in the original either, but was inspired by something that was. the original what did it feel like to bring this to the screen for you personally it was i felt a, a tremendous responsibility to bring it to the screen but i remember i was probably writing swingers about the time this came out so i was not the generation that grew up with this but the fact that this like the pixar movies cut through to me in my 20s and that even though I was not the target audience, that it made it to me and that I appreciated it and liked the film shows how ubiquitous they were and, and how powerful pieces of storytelling they were. Because I could not have been less interested. I was, if I was gonna watch a movie, I was gonna go to the New Beverly and I was gonna watch a, you know, a revival of a classic and I wasn't really keyed into what was currently part of pop culture at that time, but this film cut through and I remember thinking how wonderful it was. And so in one sense, I have the objectivity of somebody who got to see it as an adult. And, and a lot of younger people were working on the film because remember we had hundreds of people working on it and we always made sure that we kept the door open. So if somebody was in a review and they didn't like a shot that we had in, or they said, eh, it was the other way in the old movie. You know, we had to listen and we had to encourage that conversation because we just didn't have that perspective. Me and Rob Legato, Caleb Deschanel could look at each other. We don't know. But thankfully, there were many generations of people working on the movie. And in post-production also, uh, while we're working on it, not post-production, while we're working on it, Donald Glover brought Chance the Rapper around, and he was like our Lion King technical advisor. So you had Hans Zimmer, who knew everything about the original production and about the music, and, and he was working with Pharrell, who was helping to reinvent this stuff as a producer. 
But then Chance came in and watching him watch what we were doing was fascinating to me. You know, we just showed it to him like as a courtesy because he was Donald's friend and, and, you know, I'm a fan. And then he would come in and or with his friends and they would have such insightful or just seeing what they laughed at or or when we deviated, you know, to say, is that okay? He says, no, 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 it's different, but I, but I like that. Yeah, no, that's good. And so he became somebody that I really relied on. And then it was like, hey, you want to do something? And so, you know, half the animals in the cloud forest are chance doing different voices. So he's the bush baby, but he's a lot of other, he gets a lot of laughs in the movie and even did some singing and part of the Lion Sleeps Tonight thing. So he's just credited, I think, as a character in it. But I, you know, I just want to make clear that he... Um, was so much more than that. And I'm very grateful. And if he, if he ever hears this, thank you, Chance. It was, uh, I, I appreciate so much how much you helped. Speaking of the original, um, what were some of the conversations you had with the filmmakers from the 1994 film? Well, they would, you know, sometimes it would just be a meal. Sometimes it would be a tour. Sometimes it'd be showing them footage. Rob Minkoff, I knew from before. So he was the one who I spoke to the most, but there were people who were involved with this, who were involved with the previous production and, and even the stage shows and, it really was the same conversation every time, which was, here's how we did it. It was a much more precarious process than one would think. We ended up with something that we're very proud of that has had a tremendous amount of impact that we feel very lucky to have been involved with. And it feels like something bigger than it's turned into something bigger than what we knew we were doing at the time. And they really cared and they answered whatever questions I had for them. And they were very supportive when I showed them what we were working on. I think that they were happy that we were different enough that it didn't feel like we were replacing that, but it also felt like that we were true enough to it that it was honoring the work that they had done. And I make no secret of the fact that this movie's nothing without that film. This movie is uh, building on what they had discovered and created. And now we're just like the stage show, trying to find a different way to celebrate that story. You said at the premiere, there was one live action shot yes, in the film. Right. Will you reveal it? I want people to see, well, you could guess, but I want people to see the movie. And if we tell them going in, I want them to look at it and try to figure it out. And just the fact that people are coming up with saying different shots to me now tells me that we did our job. I'll give a clue. There are no animals in the shot. Congratulations thank on you. the film, and thank you so much for joining us. I'm really glad we had a chance to talk. Oh, it's, I, thank you so much for having me on here. It's so nice to have a conversation like this where it's uh, very specifically directed towards this particular part of the process, because it's nice to not have to explain everything from scratch about it, that your audience has an understanding or at least curiosity about what we're doing here, because it is fascinating, and it's nice to be able to draw attention to you know, how much innovation the people who uh, put the technical side of this together was. It's, it's all that's invisible. But later on, as after people see the movie, I'd love to show people a little bit more behind the curtain. You don't want to see how the magic trick works before you see the performance, but then afterwards, you know, we'll pull the curtain back a little bit more and show. Because as interesting as it looks visually, when you understand what went into it, there's, a, I think, a renewed appreciation for how many different people had to innovate as much as they did to make their work invisible. Thank you. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. It's never too late. Yeah.